Hi, and welcome to Beyond Prisons. I'm Ellis Maxwell, the podcast's editor and co-host of a new series we're bringing you, Beyond Solitary. In this series, we explore the horrific conditions of solitary confinement, but we also dive deep into the importance of solitary as a site of struggle and the ways that prisoners resist the torture and repression of the prison within the prison, or simply the box. This series includes conversations with currently and formerly incarcerated people, many of whom identify themselves as political or politicized prisoners, and their loved ones from across the country, with a rotating cast of hosts. Please bear with us as we navigate sound quality issues and other challenges of recording through prison walls. In our first episode, I spoke to Shaka Shakur, a longtime political prisoner and member of IDOC Watch, an organization of prisoners in Indiana and outside supporters dedicated to exposing abuses by authorities in the Department of Corrections. This is the second part of our focus on IDOC Watch, an interview with Kwame Shakur, hosted by another member of the organization who wishes to remain anonymous. My name is Kwame Shakur. I'm a new African political prisoner, currently held captive in solitary confinement in the shoe at Wabash Valley Correctional Facility. And I'm the co-founder and chairman of New African Liberation Collective, as well as the national director for the Prison Life Matter movement. In this episode, Kwame Shakur discusses the importance of building power through inside-outside organizing. He shares his assessment of current struggles against police brutality and the disconnect between the prison movement and the larger movement on the streets. Kwame also touches on the effects solitary has on prisoners' mental health and how restrictions implemented in the time of COVID-19 have only exacerbated these harms. For more information on how you can get involved and support the work of IDOC Watch and Prison Lives Matter, including through giving funds, click over to the show notes. There you will also see links to several of Kwame's articles, including a piece from August 2020 on revolution and reactionary reformism. Finally, if you would like to write to Shaka Shakur or Kwame Shakur, both of their addresses are linked in the show notes as well. We encourage you to do so. Here's our interview with Kwame Shakur. He begins by describing the psychological damage caused by holding prisoners in solitary. Human beings are social creatures by nature. And when they're having you housed in a concrete tomb for months and years, you know what I'm saying, it begin, it, it's sensory and perception deprivation. And it's going to start playing on the minds and the spiritual um, aspect of the people that's being held captive in these torture chambers. And um, I witness it every day around me. Not everybody has a strong mind because this isn't normal, you know what I'm saying? You're not supposed to be in a concrete tomb 23 to 24 hours a day. You're, you're going to break down. It's going to have effects physically, mentally, and emotionally on you. The issues that exist all around the country, but right here in Indiana especially, when they've closed down multiple um, mental facilities and psychiatric wards, um, that creates a whole nother political issue surrounding the prison industrial slave complex when you have these individuals who are already dealing with mental issues and find themselves in the court system 
Um, normally, they would be sent to a state hospital. But with all these um, state hospitals being closed down, they're being sent into maximum security facilities. And so naturally, with these people having the mental health issues and not being properly treated, they're having confrontations in population, whether it be with staff, with the guards, or suicidal issues with themselves. And they're being placed in long-term solitary confinement. And um, even for somebody who doesn't have extreme mental health issues, majority of people who find themselves within the prison system come from poor, oppressed communities. And we've been through a number of things in life that's left us traumatized, you know what I'm saying? So when you're placed in long-term solitary confinement in solitude by yourself for 23 to 24 hours a day, for months and years on end, all that trauma that you've experienced in life, you have nothing to do but sit in there and dwell on that pain and the experiences all day. And that either is going to lead to the mental issues because they have no other interaction with another human being. They're being cut off from population. They've been cut off from their family. Right. Then there are some specific issues that you and others back there are trying to get dealt with right now specifically at Wabash Valley, in the secure housing unit where you are. They're not even abiding by the Indiana Department of Corrections' own policies with regards to video visits and commissary and the diets y'all are getting. Yeah, since the the COVID pandemic took off in March, uh, the visitation room has been closed down down here at Wabash. And um, so it's been going on 10 months now that we have been able to see our family and our loved ones. And um, however, population has had access to kiosk machines to do video visits through GTL. So if your family has a laptop on the street, they're able to do video visits from the comfort of their own home. And um, so we're demanding that the facility place these kiosk machines back here in the shoes so that we can see our people because the pandemic clearly isn't going anywhere. And as long as there's um, even one or two outbreaks in the camp or in this county, they're not going to open the visitation room back up. And um, in terms of the commissary and the hygiene, we're being housed in long-term department-wide segregation. And this is the only lockup unit in the state that doesn't have the kiosk machines for video visits on the units, as well as the only lockup unit in the state that is denying us the right to have proper hygiene products, clothing, and access to um, food commissary after 60 days on lockup. And um, when you couple all that with... um, the conditions back here in the shoe, you know what I'm saying, with the lack of food and the nutrition issues that are going on, that also leads to um, ones acting up back here and, and, you know what I'm saying, just the the mental and emotional stress and toll that that takes on ones back here. Right. So we're organizing call-ins and email blasts to try to address these issues in, in addition to what you and others back there are doing, filing grievances on these issues. Could you speak on the responses you've gotten to the grievances? 
it's fundamental that we have that outside organizing and um, response from the people, the families and the movement, because our only course of action in here, especially in the shoe where we can't organize or mobilize to um, make our voices and demands heard, all we can do is fight with our pen in solitary confinement. And before we can expect any real um, action from the prison administration, we have to file a grievance in order to exhaust all of our remedies and get it into the hands of the outside court. But the grievance specialist in here is working in coordination with the unit team manager and with the warden. And when they seen the mass number of uh, captives filing grievances against this issue, demanding that we get um, equal protection and get a video visit machine placed back here just as population has throughout the pandemic, they're sending all of our grievances back without an official grievance number attached to it. So that means that there is no paper trail that exists and outside of this prison or outside of that grievance specialist, the issue was never raised. Therefore, they're limiting um, the avenues that we have to really move forward and properly um, challenge these repressive conditions back here in regards to the video visitation. For context, Aaron Israel Isby, who did 28 consecutive years in solitary at Wabash Valley and other solitary confinement units in Indiana, won a lawsuit in 2018 challenging indefinite solitary confinement on the issue of due process. The court found that the DOC's practice of abusing 30-day and 90-day reviews was unconstitutional. But Richard Brown, who was the former warden at Wabash Valley was na- who, and was named in the lawsuit, was actually promoted after the lawsuit and other lawsuits on excessive use of force. And Jack Hendricks, the former assistant warden at Wabash Valley, has also since been promoted to executive director of classification for the DOC. More information on how IDOC Watch is responding to these developments is linked in the show notes. And that just plays into what we talk about in terms of prison politics, because the same people who we were just challenging on a facility level a year or two years ago, and we were trying to seek outside attention from the higher-ups within the DOC um, at the downtown and um, regional level. Now when we complain about these issues down here, our grievances and the paperwork are going to these same people that we were just fighting and filing these same complaints against just 12 months ago. What is the importance of inside-outside relationships and movement building and what are some of the challenges? That inside-out coordination is definitely fundamental um, in terms of, like we were just saying before, we could have uh, structures and movements inside every prison in America. But to them, they, the oppressors feel no threat from that, you know what I'm saying, at a certain point. On the streets, the oppressors, they are only challenged and feel the need to correct the things they've done or backpedal on it when the media gets involved and when there's an outside movement putting boots on the ground and they're marching in protest. But in here, none of that can happen until the outside movement gets involved and becomes our voice 
and puts a spotlight on these camps and the movements that are going on on the inside. And um, that inside-out work is not only what's going to build up the prison movement, but it's what's going to allow us to sustain the united front and carry on the work that ones like George Jackson and our forerunner started in the 60s and 70s. And um, we're definitely at a better advantage today with all the technology that we have that allows us to network around the country and connect with all these other organizations that are doing similar work as ours. And uh, the political education, that's also key in that inside-out coordination. The ones are having political education on the outside as well as on the inside so they know the core issues and can understand the dialectical materialism and how the cause and effects that exist in society is what led to the expansion of the privatization of all these prisons and the expansion of state prisons and jails across the country. You know what I'm saying? There's a direct connection to it. And until you identify the core issues, then you don't know where to organize and mobilize around. So that education around the core issues and the politics of imprisonment in America is essential to us being able to um, finally defeat the enemy and overthrow the prison industrial slave complex. But I would say one one of the challenges is the repression from the state. You know what I'm saying? They they see what's going on the same way they seen what was going on in the 80s and 90s. And so now that they're seeing a rise in support from outside organizations and they're witnessing this united front take place and all of us uniting every year for the national prison strikes, they're doing more and more to repress um, our efforts. And um, that goes from uh, extreme censorship of mail and books coming in now and um, also with the... Um, stopping the in-person visits and behind-the-glass visitation and making them video monitored so that they can um, screen every conversation that takes place between us and the outside. This is sort of an aside, but in terms of the challenges of connecting inside and outside organizing efforts, it seems to me that there's a disconnect between the movement on the streets, like what we saw this past summer, and the prison movement. A disconnect between movements against state violence, dealing with policing, police murdering people in the streets, and the rest of the prison industri- industrial complex. Yeah, and that's precisely why we chose Prison Life Matter as the name for the United Front. Is not just to say Prison Life Matter to the oppressors, but even to the outside movement and to organizations like Black Lives Matter. Because for years, um, prison organizations and political prisoners like myself was reaching out to the leadership within Black Lives Matter and were organizing national demonstrations and local demonstrations and were calling on Black Lives Matter to help mobilize the people and put a spotlight on these conditions going on. You know what I'm saying? That people are getting killed in here by the pigs as well. Our civil rights are being violated in here every day as well. And um, organizations like Black Lives Matter failed to step up and blatantly ignored the cries of political prisoners and families of murdered prisoners. We were trying to organize these events, so we're telling even the outside movement that prison lives matter. And um, part of that disconnect that exists, not only with the movement that we've seen this summer with Black Lives Matter, 
in the prison movement, but there's also a disconnect within the liberation movement and the national independence movement within this country. And that's not only, we can't only blame that on the organizations that are out there on the forefront and gaining the attention of the media and the masses in the international world, but we have to put responsibility on ourselves. And when we see these movements taking place out there with Black Lives Matter and other organizations, they have the ability to mass mobilize the people. We have to show up at these demonstrations and pass out our material, pass out our pamphlets, pass out mission statements, and raise the consciousness of the people so that they're aware of the prison movement. Because I've said it time and time again that when you see one of these demonstrations taking place on the street, and there's two, three thousand people at a Black Lives Matter demonstration. Those aren't two or three thousand Black Lives Matter members. That's two or three thousand oppressed New African, Latino, and poor Euro Americans who are agitated and they're fed up and they're ready to resist and rebel against the system. But when they show up to these demonstrations and the only leadership or lack thereof is organizations like Black Lives Matter and other reactionary reformist um, organizations, that's all the people have to follow. So we got to show up and use these demonstrations as revolutionary breeding grounds to um, create a sentiment for the prison movement because when we say that this is a new movement, we mean that it's a new generation, it's a new day and age. So back in the day in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even the early 90s, the movement was connected. The people on the streets and the people within the organizations, they understood that this was all one struggle and it was one movement from the liberation movement to the prison movement and it was all connected. But now this new generation of activists and organizations, they're not compassionate to the situations that we see going on right now with the mass killings at the Terre Haute Federal Penitentiary. They're not organizing around death penalty cases. And they're not organizing around um, the police brutality and state violence that exists within these camps. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Beyond Prisons, the second in our new series on solitary as a site of struggle. In the rest of the episode, Kwame Shakur discusses the distinction between revolution and reactionary reformism, and the need to make more people aware of organizations like IDOC Watch, Prison Lives Matter, and the New African Liberation Collective, groups Kwame believes can provide an example of how to build and develop inside-out revolutionary strategy. Kwame ends with his excitement for the future and his hopes for 2021 in the prison movement. the distinction between revolution and reactionary formism, where within the movement we got a slogan, um, agitate, educate, organize, and mobilize, to where when these situations pop off, the people are in their agitation, rebellion stage. So Black Lives Matter and other organizations, they use the agitation of the people around police brutality to mobilize them, but what they're failing to do when they have the attention of the people is to properly educate them and organize them. And that means when we have these people out there and you're able to assemble thousands of people 
there needs to be a program and leadership and organizational structure for the masses to see. You got to raise their conscience beyond police brutality because that's not the core issue. And if you're not organizing these people around the core issues and giving them something that can meet their everyday, day-to-day needs, then when they leave that demonstration and that protest or that march, they're going to go home and go to sleep and wake up and go back to being neo-slaves and economic slaves with a colonial mentality. We've done nothing to change that, you know what I'm saying? So that goes back to, again, of we can't only put the blame on these reformists and reactionary individuals or organizations because they clearly don't know any better. But we, as cadre and revolutionary leadership, we know what needs to be done. We've wrote the books. We've read the books. We studied the material, the theory, and now it's time to turn that theory into practice. And that's what's been lacking is people have been failing to turn theory into action. We don't get the media attention. They don't see us out there on the ground the way that they're seeing these other organizations. You know what I'm saying? They don't know that organizations like IDOC Watch and Prison Life Matter exist. So it has to go from the work that we're doing right now with IDOC Watch and NALC and countless other organizations that we're in tune with around the nation of really going out there in the community and trying to create programs and structure and create these bases so that the people can see and hear the vision. You know what I'm saying? And that comes by doing things like we did the past two summers of having the new African People's Assembly. Because by coming to the people and bringing them to these People's Assemblies, we're showing them that we are our own liberators. We have the ability to free ourselves. You know what I'm saying? We don't have to go to their Republican and Democratic town hall meetings. We don't have to go to their polls and vote for somebody from outside of our community to come in and change our reality and our social conditions. And that's the only way that this is going to happen is by us continuing to go out there and engage with the people and um, develop revolutionary mentalities and destroy that colonial mentality that exists and destroy the prestige of, you know what I'm saying, the the political arena of the Democratic and Republican Party. Right now what we're seeing is very hopeful and it's, it's inspiring to see the number of organizations and, and leaders that's coming together from all around the country. And um, that's kind of what's been lacking in previous years is that you have a lot of organizations within the same nation and the same movement We've all read the same books. We've all studied the same material. So therefore, we know what needs to be done. But there was a lack of a national strategy and national infrastructure. And with NALC and with Prison Life Matter and other organizations that have got behind the collective and this united front, we're being able to implement that now. And um, with in regards to NALC and the New African Independence Movement, that front is Frolinon, which is the front for the liberation of the New African Nation. And it consists of um, 10 programs for decolonization and operating on the three-phase theory 
with class struggle for national unity, national unity for self-government, and self-government for national independence. And right now, we're on that first phase of class struggle for national unity. And what I hope to see in Comrade Jalil Mutakim, who is the um, brainchild of Furlanon and the three-phase theory, is we're hoping to see um, all these organizations who have got behind the front adopt these programs for decolonization and take them into the prisons and into the communities and um, bring it to the people so that we can move forward and uh, introduce the people to self-determination. And that's when we'll start seeing um, a more revolutionary fervor amongst the masses and contrast to the reactionary reformism that's taking place right now. And as far as Prison Life Matter and IDLC Watch, um, with Prison Life Matter, we're using IDLC Watch right now as the blueprint for what structure looks like within a state and on a regional level. And we're hoping to transcend that around the country with the other members we have on the National Coordinating Committee for Prison Life Matter and showing them how that inside-out movement works and operates and the political education is key. Of Having these political education classes on the street as well as on the inside and developing a curriculum for cadre development. And um, that's what we're going to need to sustain the movement. And um, right now I'm just really hopeful because what we're seeing is something that we've never seen within the prison movement is having this many organizations all band together and unify to form a cohesive body so that everybody's moving in one direction under one national strategy. And when that happens, you know what I'm saying, um, it's real hard to oppress or colonize a nation or a group of people or destroy a movement the way they did in the past with COINTELPRO when everybody is moving on one accord and we're all united. We want to let the people know that... Um, we have a platform for the people within the movement, for the families of incarcerated individuals and those behind enemy lines to put their issues out there through our website at supportprisonlivesmatter.org and idocwatch.com. And this winter we'll be um, coming out with the Prison Life Matter in the spirit of Nelson Mandela newsletter so that we can help um create this unity and get the word all across the nation to different organizations and within these camps around the United States so that everybody is all moving accordingly and, um, you know what I'm saying, everybody's aware of what this strategy is and what this infrastructure looks like. So um, yeah, I'm just real excited about seeing that moving forward and seeing what that looks like for 2021. Thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonstein. 
Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes, and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.